You are listening to the Signature Books Podcast. Hello, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Barbara Jones-Brown, Director of Signature Books Publishing. Beginning in 1872, Latter-day Saint suffragists in Utah published a women's rights newspaper called The Woman's Exponent. The Exponent's leading editor was Emmeline B. Wells, who was also Relief Society General President of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Though The Exponent was one of the longest-running feminist periodicals in the United States, it was all but forgotten in the decades after it dissolved in 1914. That was until 1972, exactly 100 years after the Exponent's inaugural issue, when a group of Mormon women in Boston were astounded to rediscover issues of the Woman's Exponent, this feminist publication of their LDS foremothers, in the archives of Harvard University. In 1974, 102 years after the first issue of the Woman's Exponent and 60 years after its last, this group of women that included historians Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and Claudia Bushman began publishing The Exponent Two, a quarterly periodical that they called a spiritual descendant of the original Exponent. In 2024, Exponent Two will celebrate its 50th anniversary. As part of that commemoration, Signature Books is honored to publish a book on 50 years of Exponent Two, co-edited by Katie Ludlow Rich and Heather Sundahl. In today's podcast, we are delighted to offer you a sneak peek of this forthcoming book, as presented by Rich at the 2023 Sunstone Symposium. Rich is a writer and independent scholar of Mormon women's history. Her work has been published in Exponent 2 and Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, and is soon to be published in the Journal of Mormon History. And now, on to Katie's presentation. Good morning. Um, in 1997, Jan Ships, the acclaimed non-LDS scholar of Mormon history, visited Boston to speak to the Exponent 2 staff. She said, I've concluded that the best way to describe the place of Exponent 2 in Mormon history is by looking at it as Mormonism's stealth alternative, Like a military plane that is able to fly without radar detection, Exponent 2 had managed to publish for decades without its writers facing church discipline, as some of the writers of Sunstone and Dialogue had recently experienced. She argued that while Exponent 2 was certainly interested in the past, it did not set out to reconstruct the past or get at the truth of the past. Instead, Exponent 2 did history by consistently adding to the body of evidence of what it is like to be a Mormon woman. What it offered to the present and to history was the stories, lives, and experiences of Mormon women living in a particular time. When Exponent 2's first issue was published in July 1974 by a group of Boston-area Mormon women, and as Janine already said, Claudia Bushman famously wrote that their paper was poised on the dual platforms of Mormonism and feminism, but what gets less attention is what they hoped the paper would accomplish— Bushman wrote, we begin publication of Exponent 2, a modest but sincere newspaper, which we hope will bring Mormon women into closer friendship. 
Faithful but Frank, Exponent 2 will provide an open platform for the exchange of news and life views. The Exponent women came to feminism from a variety of entry points, and they learned from their first consciousness-raising meeting in the home of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich in June 1970 that they disagreed on a lot. From this group of Mormon housewives, budding academics and single professional women, functional, useful feminism for them meant exchanging differing views with the hope of building closer friendships in the process. They needed to find a way to listen to each other and learn from one another rather than allow their differences to drive them apart. Boston was a hub of the women's movement, and Exponent 2 was one of several publications of its era. To add to Jan Shipp's analysis, I argue that in order to serve women who were both Mormon and feminist, Exponent 2 had to be both Mormonism's stealth alternative and feminism's stealth alternative. Exponent 2 advocacy had to be focused on listening and relationship building over other forms of more direct advocacy. I'll briefly discuss two other Boston feminist publications that emerged in a similar time frame and consider how the Exponent brand of feminism looked different. Then I'll look at how Exponent founding mother... Judy Dushku's long-running columns, Sisters Speak and Sisters Help, exemplify a Mormon feminism that prioritized relationships over ideological purity. The first collective project that the Boston Mormon feminists worked on in the 1970s was the women's issue, or pink issue, of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. In the introduction to that issue, Claudia Bushman wrote, although we sometimes refer to ourselves as the LDS cell of women's lib, we claim no affiliation with any of those militant bodies, and some of us are so straight-laced as to be shocked by their antics. We do read their literature with interest. What does Claudia mean by the LDS cell of women's lib? The group Boston Female Liberation published one of the first feminist journals, No More Fun and Games, beginning in 1968. And in 1971, they launched a magazine called The Second Wave. Headquartered at 16 Lexington Avenue, they took on the, the name Cell 16 with the idea that rather than have lots of women join their efforts, they would encourage women to go start their own cells. Boston Female Liberation, Cell 16, joined the fight for legalized abortion and championed the call for no forced sterilization that haunted so many Black, Latina, and Native American women. The group viewed feminism as a disruption to the model of womanhood that offered wifehood and motherhood as the only viable options. They participated in protests, demonstrations, and conferences. After 1972, the group dissolved as the members dispersed for various education and employment opportunities, though they remained an active part of the women's movement. Cell 16 viewed themselves as part of the radical wing of second-wave feminism, and it seems that the Boston Mormon feminists concurred. Um, Mormon feminists did not want to reject the idea of marriage or the centrality of motherhood. These were important parts of their identity and their faith, but they wanted to open a broader conversation about women's path, varying paths in life and the self-determination of women to pursue their own goals and talents. Another influential Boston feminist group was the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, the group began as a health seminar called Women and Their Bodies, organized in 1969 by Nancy Miriam Hawley at Boston's Emanuel College. The women felt they didn't have the health information they needed about their own bodies, so they decided to research and write about it themselves. Their first publication in 1970 was a 13-cent booklet named, from, named after the seminar from which it emerged. It sold over 250,000 copies. 
The women went on to form a collective and in 1973 published the book Our Bodies, Ourselves, which has gone on through many revisions and is still in print today. And the copy that I have that was published most recently is like 800 pages and it is a thick tome. Um, The conversations in women and their bodies included topics of sexuality, masturbation, orgasm, and reproductive anatomy and physiology. Some of their meetings included women... And I've seen a documentary that shows this in person. So they included meetings where women would use speculums for cervical self-exams. With the speculum inserted into the vagina, women would use a mirror to view their own cervix or that of a willing friend. So women wanted to understand their self-health, their bodies, and what they can do with that knowledge to empower themselves and their choices. Exponent 2 women were certainly interested in issues of sex, birth control, family planning, and related topics, and they would actively discuss these topics with each other. However, their paper had a different intention and approach. When they published on issues of body and sex, they did so with a Mormon sensibility and sexual ethic in mind and did not seek to challenge the church's notions of chastity, even as they worked to increase awareness of different experiences and reduce shame. Though tame compared to other feminist journals, they broke new ground for LDS publications with their fall 1982 issue, Mormons and Sexuality. The cover was a black and white image of Nancy and Paul Dredge's hands just barely touching. (laughs) An intentionally subtle suggestion of the issue's content. The idea of feminist publication was not unique in Boston, but the launch of Exponent 2 coincided with the heavy-handed priesthood correlation efforts made by male church leaders in Salt Lake City that eroded the autonomy of the Relief Society. In 1970, the First Presidency ended the Relief Society's financial independence, cutting off their ability to raise and control funds themselves and dictating that their budgets on a general and local level would be under priesthood control. Furthermore, in an effort to economize and streamline church sponsors' publications, the Correlation Committee also ended the Relief Society magazine after a 56-year run. The church was entering an era of anti-intellectualist retrenchment that considered feminism a threat to the church and the family unit. In order to publish on the dual pillars of Mormonism and feminism, Exponent 2 had to walk a fine line. They focused on news and views, making personal sharing through essays and letters the focal point of the paper. It's hard to argue against someone's personal experience. A personal story is not as threatening as an academic essay or public demonstration, but it can be transformative. This required that they prioritize relationships over any particular feminist ideology in order to create room for empathetic sharing and listening. This approach is exemplified in Judy Dushku's long-running columns, Sisters Speak and Sisters Help. Judy Dushku is often labeled as the most radical of the founding mothers of Exponent. After graduating from BYU with a degree in political science, she moved to Boston in 1964 and earned a master's degree at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. As a student, she became involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement, which became her entry point to the women's movement. She became a professor at Suffolk University, which is located on Beacon Hill, just blocks away from Boston Commons. And after class, she would take her students down to the Commons to listen to the different protests and demonstrations to be exposed to different viewpoints. Judy became friends with the exponent women when she was a single professional, though by the time the paper started, she had married a man who was not a member of the LDS Church, and her mixed-faith marriage 
became a shield to her. She was able to write or speak about what she wanted without fear of repercussions to her husband's calling in the church as other women had to consider. In her professional work, Judy participated in advocacy in many ways, but within the pages of Exponent 2, she focused her efforts on providing a forum where women could share with and support one another. Judy introduced the Sister Speak column in the second issue of the paper. She wrote, The editors of Exponent 2 have been delighted at the response to our first issue. Clearly, there is a widespread wish to share, both to tell others about ourselves and to hear what our sisters have to say. Our goal is to facilitate that sharing. She edited the column for the next 30 years. Typically, she would pose a question in one issue and publish the answers to that question in the next issue. But at times, the column was shaped around a more organic response to a popular article or something happening in the broader Mormon world. The genre of asking a question and publishing the answers was not unique to Exponent. Even the church's magazines at the time had a similar style column. But in Exponent 2, the questions and the answers didn't have to meet a particular standard of orthodoxy. Sister Speak included balancing competing obligations, mental health and depression, the women's movement, the socialization of women, sexuality, the absence of feminist theology in the church, and more. Many of these topics coincided with the larger themes of the paper, but this column was less, it was a less formal space that allowed Exponent to address big topics in a non-threatening way. Judy was really talented at finding an opening that allowed them to have a more direct and frank conversation. For example, when Carolyn Pearson's groundbreaking memoir, Goodbye, I Love You, about her mixed sexual orientation marriage and losing her husband to AIDS became widely discussed in LDS circles, Judy saw that as an opportunity to talk more directly about homosexuality within the paper. It was something that was not comfortably and openly talked about within the LDS world, especially with any level of empathy or understanding. In 1985, Judy began an additional column called Sisters Help, where she would share a letter from a woman seeking insight from the exponent community. She asked respondents not to preach, but rather provide sympathetic suggestions of what might help them get through rough places, resolve the dilemmas, pick up their lives, and go forth. Sisters Help topics included the pain of mothers not being included in the blessings of their babies, the church requiring women to get their non-member husband's permission in order to go through the temple, the problems of spousal abuse and the negative reactions from church leaders in these cases, and so on. In Sisters Help, women could ask for support on issues that they could not discuss with their own ward. In one Sisters Help letter, a mother of six young children whose family was struggling financially wrote about the challenge of her husband's demanding calling— My husband was called to be a bishop less than a year ago, and I feel like I have been in hell ever since. In the following issue, women who had had been wives of bishops responded with empathy, offering recommendations on how to communicate honestly and practical tips for making it through. Importantly, these columns were not a place of ideological purity. From an editorial perspective, Judy prioritized authenticity to an individual's experience, over a performative commitment to the church or feminist values. Sister Speak did not necessarily seek to show all sides on a topic in equal measure, but it gave room for multiple perspectives and disagreement in the spirit of fostering mutual understanding. 
Judy continued to edit the columns through the 30th anniversary issue in 2004, and around that time, the blogosphere was growing, and in 2006, Caroline Klein and Jana Remney launched the Exponent 2 blog. In the early years of the blog, the comment section provided a forum for readers to connect and share with one another. Facebook later provided a gathering space for Mormon feminists as well. But before the internet made nearly instantaneous communication possible, the exponent community had sisters speak. And unlike in the comment section of social media, it took months between a question posed and a response published. This gave a chance for writers to pause, think, work through emotions, and write to share and understand rather than react in the heat of the moment. In the last 50 years, Individuals from Exponent have engaged in advocacy in many ways. They have written letters to church or government leaders, marched in demonstrations, participated in protests and boycotts, and have worked towards gender equality both inside and outside of the church. But most of the direct action advocacy takes place through individuals' involvement in organizations outside of Exponent. Within Exponent, the work of feminism is the work of community through sharing and deep listening. Thank you.